you're here for the images discussion. Our topic specifically this evening is pictures of Jesus, pictures of, of God, images of God, pictures of Jesus, their place or lack thereof in worship and in the Christian life. The catalyst for this discussion is the fact that we're going to be covering over massive stained glass windows with curtains. And we like the color. We like the fact that they are stained glass, but there's something about the images that is not permissible or desirable for us as we worship. Uh, So those curtains, thankfully, are going to let some light through, but their goal is we have experimented with various fabrics is to obscure what is back there. I often open Sunday evenings with a little bit of a conversation piece. So I ask you, have you heard discussions on the use of images in worship? Have you thought about it? Is this a new idea for you, this concept of pictures of Jesus being in a place of Christian worship? Have you heard discussions on it? Have you listened to a podcast on it? Have you thought about it? I just want to hear just some big picture uh, understanding of where y'all are in this discussion. I have never thought in detail about it, but it has always been some people believe that playing crosses are okay and crosses with an image of Christ are not. Mm-hmm. I've never questioned why. It was never something that I was ever prompted to really delve into. Mm-hmm. But I've known it was a thing. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like there's so many different interpretations on whether the cross should be in the middle, behind, the left, to the right, whether Jesus is on it, whether it's off it. It really just depends. Right? I feel like I've gone. I don't know if it's Parkside, who doesn't even have a cross anywhere. And then there's other churches. We were at Lutheran Church, we have it right up there. There's another denominational church that has it on the sides. So it's, and then obviously, the Catholic Church has it on there. But it's like, it's different. Mm-hmm. So I'll hand over here, yeah. So I think growing up in a PCA church, never, like, I've never. It's never been a topic of discussion just because it's never been there. Uh, whenever like visiting my grandparents in Chicago and going to the Lutheran church there, like always oh, singing, always be like, oh yeah, that's weird or uncomfortable because like a lot of European-based Christian uh, denominations, Jesus is often white, which is you know. Mary has- Long and blue eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's always been a thing of like, okay, well, he. I think it took me a long time to realize, like, oh, that's that what he looked like. And since we don't really know why, I, I think I've always had the mindset of why heaven if we don't know for sure. I think that's always been my thought when there's been images of like, well, we don't, we, no one can prove it. You know that stained glass Jesus in there is what he really looked like versus any other church. Yeah. Yeah, the question of historical accuracy will come up tonight. Okay. Yeah. 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 The churches I grew up in, mostly fundamentalist Baptist churches, they all had stained glass windows, but nobody, it just wasn't a thing. Like, nobody really paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids grew up 
Parkside and then at Redeemer. So they've never been around images at all. And in fact, the first time Gavin ever saw an image of Jesus in worship was here in this room with that football thing that used to be on the wall back there. He was wigged out about it. <laughs> he was really not, not comfortable with that thing staring down at the room. Yes, I apologize. <laughs> it is what it is, but it's gone. But, but even fun, I would add here, because you have kind of the same background, even the fundamentalist churches will have pictures of the Last Supper or mm-hmm. the occasional yeah. picture of Christ. And I, I don't know, it, it is something I have looked into, but it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, even the arguments out there you know, on the internet both ways are not extremely convincing. I mean, there, there's, I, it, it ties back to a million things. I mean, the whole Ten Commandments are character of God. What do they really mean? I mean, it's, yeah. it's this is a massive subject, really, when it comes yeah. down to it. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, it, it is something, you know, your prayer before, something I do struggle with. I mean, I, just full disclosure, you know, I watched the first two seasons of The Chosen and then kind of started this whole uh, law of worship, Bodhi Bakum series. If you don't know who Bodhi is, I encourage you to go mm-hmm. to that. But uh, I, I personally, and I'm not judging anybody else for it, but I personally just stopped watching the third season. Yeah. Uh, and kind of regret it because I think it's a great learning tool. I mean, there's a there's the obedience side to what we read and understand, and then there's the human side of our brains that just doesn't make sense. And I'm kind of lost personally in that. So I think I, look to I think <laughs> I think that's a really helpful distinction between there's the experiential human side that longs for certain types of engagement versus the scriptural. Um, I, I'll go ahead and say restrictive in one sense, but so blessed in another sense, requirements for worship. Uh, and so we, we are going to wrestle with, with how those two connect. Um, I'm with you. I stopped watching after a season um, out of conviction. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, well, in this group, I'm not sure. But um, R.C. Sproul had all kinds No, they were paintings of Christ, but no face. Or were there faces? I don't remember. Not in the sanctuary. They had stained glass in their sanctuary, but it wasn't. Right. No, it was out in the narthex. narthex. They had some really famous, like Rembrandt paintings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, even in. Well, I I know he was ordained. What is it? But worked out of bounds. Yeah, even within the. Yeah. You know, reform community. Yeah. Oh, yes. And, and the the arguments that I bring tonight and the objections that I bring in this handout, which probably not going to get through all this in one night. It's probably going to take us two nights tonight and then two weeks from now. Um, there is a reformed Presbyterian church of conservative conviction in, in um, Greenville, South Carolina, Second Pres. Uh, and they, that building used to belong to another denomination. There is a huge 10-foot circle stained glass of Jesus above it. And nobody in that church is okay with it, but it's there. Um, and, and they hosted a conference there that I went to last year. And the conference said, we will never again host it here because of that. Um, and so it's, we, you do run into practical questions. And when you get into the Westminster Standards, you realize they require the removal of these things if you take out over the space of another church. But that's, we're going to leave that one probably in the history books. Probably won't dive into that in too much detail in this study. 
you had something you were going to say. I was just going to say, I, my approach is similar to yours, that I grew up in churches where there was a beautiful painting of either the laughing Jesus or the smiling, worshipful Jesus, or Jesus with a child on his knee, a lot like that one right there. Yeah. Um, but there were pictures of Jesus in every church I was ever in as a child. I never questioned it. Not once, until you told me to. And then I got into it, and I was like, oh, it doesn't say no idols, because that was the memory, was, well, the second commandment is don't have any idols. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't feel like I had any idols until I really read what it said. Yeah. But there are other things in there that we aren't obeying, so that's what I want to get into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Why do we do the first half and not the second half? Yeah, yeah, great. We'll get into no that. No pictures of Jesus, but what about nature? Yep, I have an answer for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said something that one, I wanted to. I wanted to give another example of it. It was pictures of Jesus, laughing Jesus. No, I don't remember what it was at this point. It may come to me. Probably not. <laughs> it's been that week, hasn't it? Okay. This handout that you have is extensive. Um, it. You see the first page simply has common Bible verses. And then there are the confessional... Oh, I remember what it was now. It had to do with the, the idols versus image, just, you know, paintings or some other... Um, this is not in the handout, but there's uh, actually an interpretive difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. The um, Orthodox Church believes that that applies uh, specifically to carved images. So anything that's three-dimensional violates the second commandment, which is why if you go to uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, you'll see a lot of images of Jesus and the saints, but they're all two-dimensional. They're all flat, whereas you see sculptures and much more in the Roman Church. Um, and so they, there's a difference in the two-dimensional versus three-dimensional interpretation of the second commandment. You have something to say about that? Right. Yeah. 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 And, and I think, um, I think, Bob, you've brought up really my goal for this whole this whole discussion because the second commandment deals with the character of God. It deals with our relationship to the triune God. Um, I want this to be a time where we are able to, with guards down, explore how can we honor him the highest, um, and how can we glorify him. Uh, and and when we, we are going to, and this will answer your question, we're going to read the second commandment in its context of how it is a part of worshiping God. Um, and so that's, that's how we're going to address that, that question that you brought up. Um, the this Westminster Standards, now I ended up cutting out a, some specific questions that uh, were otherwise listed. The Westminster Standards um, do, um, in some ways, they are what has, their verbiage has created a division within the Reformed churches. So even in the PCA, you're going to find people who are okay with images of Jesus for the sake of pedagogy, that is education, teaching. Um I personally don't think they have a very strong argument. Um, but everybody in the PCA understands these confessional um, perspectives to restrict the use of any images of Jesus or God in, in worship at all. Um, so so we're gonna, we'll get into those details. Then you'll find 
um, a specific section that says, why not images of God? And then a specific section, why not images of Jesus? Of course, that's not to differentiate the two, but uh, why does Jesus get his own section here? That's right, because he became visible. So then what do we do with the fact that we have the invisible God, image of the invisible God made visible to those, to those who saw him? And then there are objections. All of them except the last one uh, come from within the Reformed world. Um, and then that last section simply gives us an optimistic um, look into why we should follow the second commandment with great eagerness. And so those are the six points that'll wrap us up there. I think it's helpful to just start with Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. Um, please notice this, this whole document is largely a summary um, of this article in the Confessional Presbyterian um, by David Van Drunen, who wrote Our Living in God's Two Kingdoms uh, book that we did last year. Uh, this article is uh, available in the Confessional Presbyterian, which is in the Redeemer Library. Uh, it's also available in uh, this PDF that uh, I believe I can pass on to you without copyright infringement. If I can't, I will simply point you to the library um, if you would like to take a look at it. But I, I say that to, to point out on this handout, a lot of the exact verbiage is a quote from his article. Um, so please see this as his work, not mine. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. The second commandment is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Although uh, this, if you remove this commandment, as we have done in this quote here, from its setting in the Ten Commandments, it seems to be stating generally no carved images of any created thing in nature. We have to understand this passage is in the context of how to worship God. So therefore, especially what we'll see is we're going to look at Deuteronomy 4 here in a minute, which is an inspired commentary on the second commandment. Um, that's why I think this is referring to, it says, do not make a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So you can't make an image of a mushroom in your worship of God. I don't think this is saying that you, you can't think of a bird and draw a bird. I think what it's saying is you can't think of God and draw a bird. <laughs> You'd be in trouble otherwise. Maybe. I think, I think this preceded the, the Roman understanding. Um, but it, it pro they had their own way of thinking about it. Like, you have the Baal. Uh, you have um, other... I, I think of the Egyptian pantheon, and they all were connected to, to a certain part of nature, and so the gods were often represented by something in nature. And you see that in Romans 1. 
They have turned God into images resembling, resembling mortal man and, and birds and animals and creeping things. I think that's what's going on here, especially when we look at Deuteronomy 4. Um, now, before we look at Deuteronomy 4, I do want to make one more point about this second commandment. It sing, seems to differentiate making a graven image and worshiping an idol. But we should not think of those as simply two separate things. They're really two sides of the same coin. It's not like it's okay to make idols as long as you don't worship it. It's, it's prohibiting this two-sided coin of making and worshiping images um, in, in an attempt to worship God uh, in a way he has not uh, designed. They, they are a unified sin, as Van Jernan put it. Here's the Deuteronomy 4 verse, and this comes from... Um, I'm quoting specifically here verses 15 through 18. I encourage you, open it, open to it in your Bible if that is helpful to you. Remember Deuteronomy 4, as we looked at in our Old Testament survey a, few, um, a couple months ago. Deuteronomy 4 is an inspired commentary on the second commandment. Uh, Moses is fleshing out what these Ten Commandments mean in the life of Israel. So he reiterates the Ten Commandments and he, creates, he gives commentary on them. So here in Deuteronomy 4, he says this starting in verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. The way Van Drunen put it is, he, this is a quote from him, and I, I tried to paraphrase it, paraphrase it a minute ago. He said, pondering a bird and then drawing a bird is not the problem. Pondering God and then drawing a bird is. And that's what Israel did at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were still trying to worship Yahweh, but they made a calf, a golden calf. And you tried to use that um, image of, in the likeness of something that is in the earth beneath as a representation of their God and by means of connecting to their God, Yahweh. And that is prohibited. It's not just that they were trying to worship a calf, they were trying to worship Yahweh through the calf. And even that is not allowed. Yes? Is there a specific history to why a calf? Because it comes up again in the second uh, list of the kingdom. Maybe. I, probably. I don't know. Because it was only recently that I learned that the calf was supposed to be Yahweh, not just a Yahweh, we've got this calf. Yeah, I don't know the specific connection between the calf and Yahweh himself. I, sorry. Deuteronomy 4.12, so this is just a few verses earlier, says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And that's uh, preceding this, this further commentary that we had just read. Uh, undoubtedly, their imaginations could have concocted fascinating images of God and compelling elaboration on his law, but they would not have been shown to be wise followers of Yahweh by imaginative activity, but by obeying what they received. So if you're in Deuteronomy 4 right now in your Bibles, look back even further to verse 6. Here we go. 
keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In order to be shown to be wise and understanding to the nations, it is to keep and do the commands. And it's not to try to come up with some impressive new expression of worshiping Yahweh that the nations might be uh, impressed by. The whole book of Deuteronomy, you can flip over to the end. Um, Now, I know this is not the very, very last chapter. Turn to Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the last verse of Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things about God. But he has revealed himself to us, and they belong to us, and they belong to our children, the covenant children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And this is the subscript that underlies the whole commentary in the book um, of Deuteronomy. And so it is from that perspective of worshiping God according to how he has revealed himself to us uh, that we read things like we find in Deuteronomy 4. Thoughts on this before we move to the next section of texts. These will keep coming up. I just want to make sure we're familiar with them before we get into the arguments. Okay, let's look at some specific passages that affirm that we do not yet live in an age of seeing Jesus. Now, that may seem totally off the cuff. This is, um, that is okay. We'll come back to it, but I want you to just see here on the page um, the fact that there is a day that we're going to see. There is a day that we will see. Today is not that day. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We live by faith, not by sight. First Peter 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy. Second Thessalonians 1, on that day Christ will be marveled at among all those who have believed. Um, and that's implying without seeing, because once we see him, we will marvel. First uh, John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John 20, verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We live in an age of faith. We live in an age of anticipation. We live in an age of suffering, not yet full sight. And so what we do know and what we do hold on to, we hold on to by how God has revealed himself. And so we must uh, then live in contentment, not just in a grumpy contentment, but in a joyful contentment that we have what God has revealed in his word to guide us in worship. There are also passages that affirm the verbal nature of God's revelation for us today. Yes, Jesus was truly incarnate and he was seen and he was touched. And John says that in 1 John 1, 3. Um, But there's something that happens and specifically it seems to be in contrast to the visible revelation of Jesus. The command from the end of, uh, from from the apostolic age onward was word-based, verbal-based. It's that we are people who have the words of God, and that, is, that drives who we are and what we do. John 15, verses 26 and 27 say, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. For, uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and it's this message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
And then 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That fellowship that we share then as believers comes through the proclamation and the testimony of these truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim and testify our verbal acts. In contrast with, you saw what John, what John was doing there, saying we, we've touched them, we've seen them, but our job now is we tell you. And so that seems to be the mode from uh, the apostolic age onward, according to Scripture. And then uh, lastly, Second Peter 1 Uh, Verses 17 through 19, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is Peter speaking, saying we saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And here it is. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, you have that prophetic word, and that is what he tells his listeners to pay attention to, is this preached word, despite the glorious uh, visual that Peter himself had received. It is the prophetic word more fully confirmed that they ought to pay attention to. There are other verses, uh, but these are the ones that we're going to just keep in our back pocket as we look at some of the arguments come, going forward. What are th- some thoughts right now? Any questions? Okay. Let's look at what the confessions say about this because we are a Reformed church. We are a confessional church. We, are, um, we have the Westminster Standards as a part of our constitution as a church and as a denomination. And so what then do we as a denomination say specifically about this? If you turn to, uh, I believe there, it's actually in the, the hymnals, in case you're ever curious in the future. 953, you got it open. Do you have your Reformation Study Bible back yet? Okay, all right. Because um, <laughs> it's in the back of that study Bible too. Um, 953, you said? Yeah. Oh, that's, well, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a larger catechism. If you go back to... No, that's okay. If you go back to chapter 21 on page 932, 932, you see um, this, this uh, paragraph one of religious worship and the Sabbath day. It says, The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. I don't know a single Christian who would say, I'm okay with worshiping God according to these suggestions from Satan. Nobody's going to agree with that. Um, 
But you may know Christians who would say, I think it's fine for us to worship God in any way that we'd like as long as it doesn't contradict his word. Right? So, um, and I'm not saying those are the same thing. I do think there are levels of differentiation there, so please hear that. Um, but what you see here is what we hold to as the um, regulative principle. It's that we choose to operate according to the positive commands of Scripture and not just in any way that doesn't break God's law. So therefore, we um, do our best to limit what we engage in in worship uh, to what specifically God has revealed to us in His Word. So that means we're not going to go and try to uh, come up with um, something that we think might be a really good idea and might really touch our hearts um, just because we, if it's based on our hearts, if it's based on our desires, we're going to see if the Lord has commanded this before we, um, before we make it a part of our worship. That's the regulative principle. Thoughts on that? This came up very briefly in our member class uh, when you joined in membership. Um, but it, I mean, you could do a dissertation on this. It's um, unbelievably rich and complex. <clears throat> yes, Eric. Where does this like, fall into the concept of the Christian thing? Uh, talking about that. This is the nine non-navigational friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're trying to understand why I'm regulative. Mm-hmm. And like, why choose left and right when the right is obviously more glorifying than the Lord? But you have the right to choose left. Um, the issue of christian freedom i don't think relates to worship yeah i mean christian freedom relates to um i'll I'll go ahead and and uh, sorry my wheels are turning in my head Uh, there's a few different ways i feel like i could go with this god is very specific about how he is to be worshiped he always has been. Um, and God doesn't say, these are just uh, some good ideas. You know, you can add your own and, you know, stir it up and see what you come up with. Um, as Christians, we live in freedom from our sins dominating us. That is a very different way of approaching how we live to the world that we live, uh, how, how we're seen by the world we live in. We do have freedom to, to figure out, uh, can, is what I'm doing now going to be glorifying to the Lord or is it going to um, scar someone's, mar someone's conscience? Um, and so we do have to choose uh, in Christian freedom how we live morally in this world. That's a very different discussion than, than worship. Um, and I know I just kind of botched that and I kind of like kind of tore it to shreds trying to to get at a point that I'm not even sure I made. But that would be my response to that. I don't think Christian freedom applies to worship. Because they make often the most part, they get grouped into the same thing. And it's a very easy way to explain, like, Christian freedom and the regulative and normative principles, like, kind of together. But they are just completely separate topics within Scripture, which makes sense. Yeah. What do you have to say? Christian freedom has more to do with not being bound to the doctrines and commandments of men. Having your conscience bound by something that's not in Scripture. But the Reformed interpretation of Scripture is that God commands us to worship Him only as He has commanded us, and in no other way. If that interpretation is correct, and I, I think it is, then Christian freedom doesn't go into it. We don't have the freedom to ignore God's command. 
Yeah, that's thank you. That's well put. Um, I don't. This might be what you're saying, but I'm gonna say it because I don't understand me. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean it. Anyway, um, if would it be correct to think of Christian freedom as outside of worship? I mean, that's the, like I would have the freedom to drink an alcoholic beverage. But I don't have that freedom if it's going to offend somebody that's sitting at the table with me. Yeah. But when I'm in worship, I can only do what God has commanded to be done. Yeah. I think in practice that might be accurate. But I think it's even more precise perhaps to say Christian freedom applies to anything outside of God's moral commands. Because there, you're, there's never a time where you are free to violate God's moral commands. Right. So it's not like you can go murder somebody and say, Christian freedom. Oh, right. 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 Uh, outside of worship. Like, well, I'm not in church, so I can do what I want. That's not, that's not what we're trying to say. I think it's where God's commands, where God has commanded us with clarity, we obey him. And Kevin was getting at the point where, where man has created his own traditions. You're not, you can't be bound by that. You can't, you can't tell me that... Um, your rules, um, actually this morning I was asked by um, some, some friends from the Lutheran Church, they said, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to invite your women to a social event, and uh, do you play cards? <laughs> <laughs> and Ernie had a great response. He said, of course, just not in worship. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the question of cards, of course, that's outside the, you know, the realm of, of morality, and, uh, or excuse me, out of God's moral law. And so, yeah, there's freedom in that to decide. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Does that answer what you were getting at? Yeah. And, and I think in practice, what you said makes sense in light of some of what we're talking about, but I think the, the, um, categories may be a little bit more defined a little bit differently. Okay. Yes. I'm sure your non-denominational friends are reading the Ten Commandments very, uh, I'll say pharisaical in a way, because that's that background, right? So they're going to say, yeah. This whole subject about idols, for example, right? Because, oh, I don't like an idol. But there's so much more under that. Yeah. They would claim Christian freedom, but they're not really digging down to the character of God. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like the line's popular. I think it is. That's what I'm getting Mm -hmm. Mm into. It really is more. That actually makes it a struggle. Yeah. That makes sense. Why do you think the Apostle John was so graphic in Christ's description, physical description? in the first chapter of Revelation? Um, I don't know. Why do you think? <laughs> I think it's because he was told to write this down. <laughs> he was told to write that down. Yeah. Is there more to that? Well, what, what you just read out of the confession of faith is it really confession of faith talking about imaginations when we close our eyes and we're praying to Christ at the right hand of God, what kind of figure is in our mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, is that I suppose idolatry? I suppose we can get into the question of imaginations right now, um, because that is a huge that's that one's hugely debated among a lot of people I've I've talked to as well. Um, 
because some uh, say that any concept in your mind of what Jesus might look like is a violation of the second commandment. I know others who will say that our, our mental images are restricted to what Scripture says about Jesus. So, um, in, in the example that was given that, that, um, that I liked was the, the, the scene of Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit is made visible as a dove. Jesus is there as a man, the voice of God coming from heaven. Um, I don't want to imagine any more than what Scripture tells me is true. And so I wouldn't say that we should go against what Scripture says is true in, in, in how we understand as we're reading. Um, but then some, some will say, all right, so those images come into your mind as you're reading. What do you do with them? If you're trying to grow that image in your mind, it's like, all right, so, so John gives us this picture of what Jesus is in Revelation 1. Let's take it and try to flesh it out into what he's trying to get at. Now what you seem to be doing is engaging too intently with something that is moving beyond the intention of the text and, or beyond the description of the text and moving into potential idolatry because you're going to get stuck on that, you're going to think about it, it's going to become your de facto um, conception in your mind of who Jesus is as you think about him. Um, whereas if you are able to read Revelation 1 and see this inspired depiction of what Jesus is um, and and not turn it into, um, how, how do I put it, um, an idolatrous fascin fascination with what he might be getting at and trying to paint it in deeper colors. I don't think it's wrong. I, and in fact, I, I would say it's not wrong at all to, to read Scripture that way. I think, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just stop there. I, I am, um, I have heard people I'll go ahead and say I'm still torn on how much I need to fight trying to paint images in my mind as I'm reading Scripture um, versus how much it's okay to let those be formed by Scripture as I read it and then to move on. But you don't want to become somebody who, who turns into um, a mental fascination version of Jesus. You don't want to do that with your mind. And, and I can give you specific arguments as to... Um, there, there seem to be two options, and that's in this article. I left it out of our handout, uh, but we can we can get into that next time. I might just prepare that to discuss in more detail next time. Yeah. I want to share as quickly as I possibly can. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark, and my mom bought for me a picture of Jesus, and it's a very popular picture, just a silhouette and. And he's just looking contemplative. And she would turn that on for me at night. No, of course, I was raised non-denominational for the most part. Um, at no time did I ever think of that picture as Jesus. And I never took it with me outside of my bedroom. But I remember as a kid finding comfort that it was an image of something that I knew was real, even though I had never seen him. Now, growing up in a Christian home, you know, I, 
fortunately, I just believed. I just trusted. Um, what do I do with that? <laughs> do you want the kind answer? <laughs> <laughs> but I already had it, and I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to beat you up for having that in your room when you're a kid. Right, okay. Um, I might beat your parents up for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to get into these arguments. The question is, if your comfort comes from that picture, is it coming from Jesus? Or is it coming from that picture? And that is a distinction we will have to tease out. That's, That's why I specified... I never, that was a picture, like a sign, a picture. It wasn't him in my head, and I never worshipped it. I never thought of it when I was at church. It was just kind of like a baby in a manger. I know that that's not Jesus. It's a, a symbol of Okay, Him. I'm going to give I know, we don't I'm, really I know, no, I'm going to run with what you're saying, and I'm going to give you a teaser for next time. Flip over to the section that says, why not images of Jesus? No, let's move on to objections. Move on to the section that says objections. Okay. Images of Jesus, this is the second objection. Images of Jesus in historical context for pedagogical purposes are permissible for use outside of corporate worship. That's an objection to our view. What this is saying is, sure, nobody's going to say that you can take Jesus. Nobody in the Reformed world is going to say, let's just take a picture of Jesus out of history, turn it into an icon, and say it's okay. But let's say you took Jesus in an historical context as was described in Scripture, and you use it for a teaching thing. Let's say that's what was going on for you. It was teaching you about Jesus. Um, Move down to point number, um, the little white circle. Let's go to the fourth one. Is it possible to encounter an image of Christ without either blaspheming him or worshiping the image? And here is what Murray says, quoted in this article. A picture of Christ, if it serves any useful purpose, must evoke some thought or feeling respecting him. And in view of what he is, this thought or feeling will be worshipful. We cannot avoid making the picture a medium of worship. If you're trying to make a picture of Jesus and the intention is not to worship him, you have made something about Christ that is not to be worshipped, and that doesn't exist. There's nothing about Christ that can exist and not be worshipped because of who he is. You say, oh, well, I'm just painting his human, his human nature. I'm not painting his divine nature. That's not possible. You can't do that. He does, but he is one person. And, and to say that you can encounter the human Jesus without encountering the divine is a heresy. That is Nestorianism. And that's, I'm going to stop there. How about that for a conclusion on night one? We're going we're gonna to pick up... Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, final comment here. I was going to say... I just... I was going to say, off of that, like... So thinking as you being a kid, it's like that image, you know, in your bedroom brought you comfort from the dark. You know, just like Christ would bring you comfort and think of, you know, worshiping him or, you know, 
in anything else, it'd be like that comfort is still reflecting on how wonderful God is and thanking him and worshiping him for right. bringing you comfort. So that same worship as us, I think that's, that makes any sense. Yes. It's a hard one. Yes. Were you going to say something? I'm going to ponder it for a week and bring it up next week. Great, or great. Next week. Yeah, please, please take notes. Uh, bring questions. Um, if you have really, really like hard-hitting questions, email them to me so I'm ready for two weeks from now. <laughs> um, I, I want to remind us our goal here is to be faithful to how God has revealed himself and faithful in obedience. So let that be what continues to drive us um, as we think about this. Again, next week, uh, Michael is going to be teaching on evangelism. So please come and and hear Michael's lesson. I mean, this is what he does with crew across the street. So he'll be sharing on evangelism, and then we'll be back to this in two weeks. Uh, And then the week after that, we're in the sanctuary, which is great. We may continue to meet in here in the evenings. I've not figured that one out yet. We may figure that out on Tuesday the 25th, so be there. Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have invited us to be um, to be in your house and to worship you. You've made us your children, and we want to be faithful. We pray that this discussion would lead us to deeper understanding of your grace and of your, your word and, and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim. I pray that as we go from here, we would uh, think about your word, that we would um, meditate on the comfort that we have. Would we, like David, know that you are our helper as things continue to be difficult until that day that we die or that day until you return? Um, and we ask that you would sustain us. Even in this with this discussion, bring us... Um, closer together and not drive us apart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.